Welcome to the latest episode of our Business in Focus podcast. I'm Rowena Morris, a director at PwC, and I'm your host for today's episode. The world is facing huge challenges in the face of climate change and growing inequality. The time for talking is over. Businesses, governments, the financial community and other stakeholders see the 2020s as a decade for action with major new commitments to achieving net zero emissions. This is something we at PwC have been examining closely recently. Our latest report, which was commissioned by the Global Infrastructure Investor Association, GIIA, examines the level of investment required to reach the UK's net zero 2050 targets and the policy recommendations needed to get there. It brings together insights from both quantitative analysis and interviews with leading infrastructure investors. In this episode, we'll discuss how organisations can invest in real assets, the built environment and the infrastructure that surrounds us in a way that has a positive impact on the environment. We'll also give you some practical tips to help you assess the risks and harness the opportunities. Today, I'm joined in our virtual studio by Colin Smith and Lawrence Slade. Colin leads our infrastructure deals team globally and is responsible for our energy, utilities, mining and infrastructure transaction practice in the UK. Lawrence is the Chief Executive of GIIA. Hi, both. Hi, Rowena. Hi, Rowena. So thanks for joining me, both of you. Colin, we hear a lot in the news about the government's commitment to promoting a sustainable future and building back greener after COVID-19. But what does this look like in practice? Yeah, um, I think the first thing I'll say, Rowena, is, is this week's been actually fantastic to see. I think it's the first time that we have really seen the UK publish um, a detailed plan um, in building back better and greener. Um, and that's been backed up by um, the spending review this week and the National Infrastructure Plan, which were published at the same time. And whilst it's, of course, right that we start to um, look at the detail and, and, and recognise the need to build out far more in the detail, I think the most important thing is that the government is, is building on its commitment um, as the first major nation to commit to net zero in 2050. Um, and it's clear to see that the direction of travel is exactly as we would have expected it to be. Um, and they're clearly identifying um, the right categories of expenditure and recognise the need for a lot of private capital to go into the infrastructure around that expenditure um, and see that as a very effective way of build, building out of the COVID situation that we're in at the moment. Um, we've got a highly credible regime already in, in, in so much of this. Um, we, you know, we are the gold standard in terms of regulatory regimes. We have um, made, had made huge strides and big success in renewable energy development. Um, but it's important to say that the success of quite a bit of that, including offshore wind, has really only been achieved because of technological and policy development um, with a very strong um, system supporting it of, of government subsidisation, but also setting clear targets. Um, and there's far more uncertainty currently about what net zero looks like. It's a great aspiration. It's a it, rather than a detailed plan at the moment. Um, and I think we need to work out very, very quickly what the next decade's investment will entail. Um, I guess the other thing I'd say is that we're not alone. You know, very soon after the UK committed, France and Germany committed, the Biden administration coming in has just, just uh, uh, announced a, a $1.7 trillion federal funding uh, intention um, heading into net zero also harnessing private sector capital you know we are going to have to compete with the rest of the, the world on this and whilst it's great that we've made a head start i think it's really important that we can uh, um, not, not not only sustain but build on that momentum 
that's a really helpful overview. And I think it'd be good to understand a bit more around what exactly will that investment look like? Uh, yeah, well, based on our analysis, Rowena, which draws on all of the evidence in the public domain, I mean, we estimate that, that over the next 10 years, roughly £400 billion will need to be invested in infrastructure alone in the UK if we're going to meet net zero. That's just the infrastructure. You know, that doesn't include the R&D into technological advances. It doesn't include the building of production facilities. Um, it doesn't include the investment in training and in jobs. So there's a huge amount need to be done. But clearly, I come at, it, come at this from an infrastructure perspective. Um, and that is absolutely critical to establish the... Uh, the, the bedrock and the support for as, as the platform for everything else to build around. Now, we see the principal four areas of that investment as within power systems, within buildings, um, supporting industry and within transport. Um, and the government's 10 point plan actually was great in that it highlighted all of the main areas we expected to see being developed. Um, and it was very pleasing to see some quite a bit of correlation with, with, with ours and others views in the industry. And I guess the key point, the key areas I would mention from that is, you know, continued investment in offshore wind, which we think is hugely important. And clearly the UK has some very good uh, geographic uh, benefits um, and, and in terms of that, that, that technology. Again, green hydrogen as well, potentially aligned to offshore wind. Um, and clearly, we're a nation that currently depends on gas for a lot of heating, uh, also energy. Um, and, and the opportunity to develop our green hydrogen infrastructure is, is a really interesting one for the UK. And I think it's one we're going to see a lot of advances in. Clearly, EV vehicles, you know, it's something that I think we're all buying into now. Uh, but a huge amount of infrastructure development is needed if that's going to be feasible. Um, at the moment, cars generate, uh, you know, the, their own energy from 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 fuel reserves that, uh, that that will last, you know, days, maybe even weeks. That's not possible with 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 EV. We need regular local supplies. We need the the to take away the fear factor that uh, people are going to go on long journeys and run out of run out of gas. Um, and clearly, greener buildings is the other main area that the government's plans focused on. Um, you know, most of us who live in, um, in 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 domestic houses have have our own separate gas boilers in the UK. That's not the that's not the case throughout much of the continent, where there's a lot of district heating. For the UK, the only available option to that is to replace those with the likes of heat pumps and and, and potentially move bringing hydrogen into the gas system. But again, a lot of work and a lot of money will need to be spent on um, on transforming um, uh, many many of the, um, the the domestic boilers that we all currently use. And Lawrence, turning to you now, sort of picking up on what we were just talking about around the 10-point plan, how does this impact the recommendations that were set out in our report? Well, I think obviously it's it's a very helpful coincidence that the two two points came out so so quickly. But I think picking up on, on some of the points there, um, we've seen that the government intends to mobilise somewhere around £12 billion uh, in, in public funds. But as you've just heard Colin say, that's not actually sufficient to, to really hit all the targets that we need to as a country. So part of the plan and part of the follow-up documents that we've referred to already have really got to address how we can release and how we can draw in or crowd in substantial amounts more private capital to, to help us move those. So I think it's it's a really good positive start, but there's, there's obviously more to be done. Um, and if you look at some of the Pacific points uh, around that, so specifically looking at um, the offshore wind sector and uh, the government's uh, wish to increase capacity to, I think, 40 gigawatts by 2030, 
that's going to need, or the government wants to encourage 20 billion pounds worth of private investment to do that. Now, to do that, to, to really be able to attract that money in what Colin says is a, is a global market, the government's really got to ensure that the right balance is, is struck, if you will, between government policy support and private investment and getting the right kind of investment that's also willing to, to innovate in the future. I think we also see uh, a really positive appetite, I think, to, to drive the growth of a low of low carbon hydrogen. And again, the government is aiming for somewhere in the region of five gigawatts of, of low carbon energy by 2030. Now, supporting that, they've announced a 240 million uh, net zero hydrogen funds linked to four billion in private investment. But again, I'm, I'm slightly concerned that um, time is not on our side in terms of hitting net zero and hitting the sort of individual targets out to that point. So it's really important that they move quickly on these positive announcements in terms of um, bringing forward further detail in, in how the structures are actually going to work. And in that regard, for example, uh, we've seen how can I put it? We've seen the benefits of having a clear strategy um, over in Germany where they have unveiled a hydrogen strategy earlier on uh, in 2020, and it's very clearly laid out the size of the investments and the potential for, for partnerships. So we've got to keep up with our near neighbours if we're to maintain a competitive edge or to regain that competitive edge. I think the other point here, and it, it slightly reflects on a, a comment that Colin just made, is there is a little bit of a conflict here between um, the need to bring in heat pumps and to almost electrify how we heat and how we cook in our houses and the hydrogen economy and how we're going to utilise our existing gas infrastructure, um, both actually from a domestic point of view and from an industrial point of view. So I think one of the things that they need to do quite quickly is to move forward from trials to actually helping householders, helping industrial users really get a picture of how their future needs are going to be met by this, because it is one of those areas that requires billions of investment. And I think it's it's clear from the PwC report that while a substantial amount of um, annual investment has access to um, some form of funding framework, it's more worrying that over 50% of the annual investment requirement is actually unable to attract um, low-cost financing capital. Now, that includes some of those critical areas like carbon capture use and storage, like hydrogen, and like, for example, the EV charging uh, networks and residential heat. So we've really got to be able to move very, very quickly on those because there are no quick fixes. These are long-term things that require substantial amounts of intervention and substantial amounts of public buy-in. So to sum up, a lot of positive things have come out of the, the Prime Minister's 10-point plan, but actually we need to really move quickly now in terms of getting more detail out and seeing where the next steps are so we can start delivering some of these really time-critical elements. And that point, I think, that you made around getting the right kind of investment that is fit for the future really resonates. Um, and Colin, building on that, what's the role of infrastructure in then making all of this happen? 
Well, Rowan, um, Lawrence is absolutely right in that if you, put, if you put yourself in the shoes of a real assets investor, you've got access to large amounts of low-cost capital. But the reason you've got access to that capital is because your investors want uh, long-term returns that they can bank on. You know, they see you as someone who's going to be a custodian of their, of their investments for the long term. They're not looking for, for super high level returns. They're looking for something far more uh, long term and, 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 and that they can rely on and not and put in their sort of uh, portfolio and not worry about too much. So you come into net zero and you look at where we are right now. And sure, we've got this really nice pool of investment, which already currently has regulatory regimes that cover it. You've, you've got contracts for difference that cover renewable energy developments. We've got the, the capacity market that covers quite a bit of uh, en energy generation. Um, and the government can obviously steer policy through that as well. And then, and then for energy and utility networks, we've got the, uh, the RAB-based regimes where essentially investors get a return on any capital they deploy as long as the regulator allows it. That's all fantastic. But for the remaining 50%, we're talking speculative growth at the moment. You know, currently, it is not possible for an infrastructure investor to put large scale amounts of capital into an EV charging network because they don't currently know what's going to work. They don't currently know what the government policy is going to be. They don't know that their assets aren't going to be superseded by uh, you know, a policy announcement by government in, 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 in a couple of years time. So clearly where they are at the moment is looking for clarity. Um, they need to have that clarity to invest. Um, and the alternative to having that is that the capital will be much shorter term. Um, it will have a much higher uh, returns requirement. Consequently, for the consumer, it will make it much more expensive. And actually, the volume of the capital there to invest will be much smaller. So there's, in our view, the only way that you can harness um, private capital at scale to achieve your net zero carbon ambitions is to make it investable by you know, real assets and infrastructure investors um, and, and make sure that whilst, yes, some of those categories are relatively immature, um, that they're not seen as risky. Um, and, and the classic um, example of where that's been done at Pace was, was within offshore wind. Um, you know, that took technologies that have been developed on onshore wind, but, it, but a huge pace of technological development, both in terms of the, the actual turbines themselves, but also in the construction um, and, and, you know, how, how you put um, quite complicated assets to work in, in, in deeper and deeper elements of, of, of the North Sea, including now we have sort of floating technology there as well. You know, it's that pace of technological development which will be critical across net zero, um, but it will only work if we have the frameworks, the long-term investment frameworks that investors can, can align to and recognise that, you know, they can put large amounts of capital to work with confidence. Thanks, Colin. That example really brings it to life, I think. So, Lawrence, how do you see the role of the private sector evolving to meet the net zero challenge? Thank you. I think it's it's really interesting, actually, that we've we've seen over the last year or so uh, various governments, the UK government, the EU Commission, really talking more and more around the the importance or the critical nature of private capital and actually using the private sector to, to help meet the whole net zero challenge. And I think actually increasingly so, um, the whole issue of net zero, of ESG, is very much aligned to net zero investment and is very much in the best interests of, of many investors. So I think this whole sector is one which holds great long-term appeal um, to the private, private investor. And I think you're also seeing 
the area of responsible investing and the need to actually understand our impact on society, how we work with the communities that are in or around our infrastructure assets. So I think it's that the, the timing is perfect for investment in this area and how we all work together. So on the one hand, I think there's an enthusiasm and I think everyone is, is actually tremendously well placed to provide the capital that's needed. But I think as we've explored a little bit so far, there is this, this need for governments to provide a much greater level of confidence in in the long-term need for these assets and the shape and and type of those assets so what do i mean by that really that we need a net zero infrastructure plan not just at the headline but actually that 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 takes you through each element and each sector and how we're actually going to deliver net zero within each asset category you know down to that level so we need very clear targets and policy frameworks that can underpin that investment and provide, as Colin said, those long-term predictable returns that are, that are so important to us. And I think without that, you could get to a scenario where the investments in, in some assets could continue to be too risky for that low-cost patient capital that can really make sure we can deliver net zero at a low cost. And Collins mentioned offshore wind there, which was a fantastic example of how uh, a combination of the private sector, private capital, and very, very clear government framework has seen something like 100 pounds trimmed off the cost of uh, offshore wind energy per megawatt hour over the last decade. I'd also add into this maybe that if you look at their recent um, decision as part of the 10-point plan to uh, ban internal combustion engine vehicle sales from uh, 2030. Yeah, that's the kind of framework that can really, or policy decision that can really get things moving. And it gives a very, very clear signal, not just to, to car manufacturers, but to the infrastructure providers with the EV charging networks. Here is something we've got a target for. This is something we've got to really move on. So it starts giving that investment certainty. And that's exactly the kind of thing that we need for the investment community, the infrastructure builders and asset managers. That's really the, the goal to that we need to deliver all of this. Okay, great. So I want to pick up on, you were talking about offshore wind there. So that's often highlighted as the UK success story. So Colin, what are the lessons from that success that we can apply to enable key infrastructure to meet net zero? Yeah. Um, it's easy to forget with offshore wind that it wasn't too long ago that there was a large amount of scepticism about it. Um, and it's great to see, I think, that that scepticism really has been put into the past. Um, and, I, and I think there are three key reasons for, for that and for its success. Um, I mean, the first is there have been policy commitments made, not only by the UK, but in multiple countries. Um, in, you know, we've seen it in Germany, in Denmark, in the UK, in Ireland. Um, the Scottish government is obviously hugely committed to, 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 to offshore wind as well. Um, and what that's meant is that technology, technology developers such as the Siemens and the Vestas and the people who make the turbines and all of the associated assets around them have been prepared to risk the R&D capital, which has made that a success. And as Lawrence said, you know, taking that 100 quid off the, uh, the megawatt, megawatt hour price. Secondly, you've seen a large amount of available capital at very, very low prices and increasingly low prices. And, and that capital is competing against each other. And I don't see any sign of that capital abating. Um, and then third, within offshore wind, 
whichever country you look at, you've had a very strong regulatory regime, and that's certainly been the case for the UK. So let's assume that the policy commitments in the UK to net zero are in place. Let's assume that that capital isn't going away anytime soon, and I don't believe it is. That leaves the regulatory regime. Um, and, and that's the side that right now I would focus on the most. Um, and, and I think for a long time, regulators in the UK have been very confident, actually, in the regimes they've had in place. Um, and they've seen their role as um, pushing a demand for performance up, quite rightly, and pushing returns down and down and really squeezing investor returns to you know the lowest the lowest possible level and success for them has been continued reductions in bills for the consumer and you can see that time after time that's totally understandable um but i think we've got to the point where it's a bit of an inflection point in in, in regulated assets where the demands on future growth and resilience, and in particular, the demands on net zero, are going to mean that those organizations are going to have to take on much more risk. Um, and the recent Competition and Markets Authority review was very notable in, in, the, in its findings. It talk, talked about a need to strike a balance between bill reduction and the interests of current and future customers in resilient infrastructure. Um, and the key bit for me, the, the piece that I took from that, was the needs of future customers. Um, you know, saving cash today is not necessarily the best way to ensure that you're doing the right thing for the future. And for me, that attitude absolutely needs to be taken into net zero. Um, and as we look to create those structures, look to create the regulatory regimes, look to harness the capital, we need to, to recognise that actually securing the right levels of investment in the right infrastructure um, is absolutely critical if we're going to get anywhere near our aims. Um, and yes, we want to be to be as competitive as possible. Yes, we want to be harnessing the lowest cost capital, but we need to make sure that um, first and foremost, we recognize the levels of investment that need to be made um, and, and really focus on that as a priority. Thanks, Colin. So Lawrence, how can we make sure the cost burden of these investments is delivered equitably across consumers as well as the taxpayers? Yeah, and I think this is a, a really serious point of, of within the whole transition actually from where we are today to, to a net zero economy and i think unfortunately we're not actually starting from from some of the one of the best places to be in that um, if you take the electricity bill today it's actually one of the most uh, uh, regressive forms of, of taxation in in the country so there's actually an awful lot of work to do um, both from a policy and a regulatory viewpoint to, to make sure we get this right and I'd, I'd really concur with with the point Colin was making there that we've got to make sure that we get the intergenerational fairness right so what I mean by that is that we don't front load or back load uh, costs uh, uh, associated with the transition, but that we try and smear them equally across the years and across the generations. Now that's not an easy thing let's let's accept that but i think we've got to have a very open conversation and i think you can see over in the european union when they have the uh, the just transition program because this is something that doesn't just affect us at an individual level um, it can also affect vast communities and entire industrial sectors so it's something that is going to take a lot of time and it's something where Actually, regulators and government have really got to work together. And I think it's this, this critical piece here that we need to ensure that there is very, very clear strategic policy guidance from government to regulators so everyone is on the same page and everyone is working towards um, the same objective. In that way, we can start 
producing policies and producing the frameworks that we've been talking about that help deliver these projects, these low carbon, zero carbon projects in the most equitable manner for, for the UK taxpayer. And let's not forget as well that you know, we're going to have to, and this has been in, in the news uh, this year as well, how do we replace the 30 billion pounds a year from fuel duty? At some point, Treasury is going to have to look at how they can address that in a fair way, because the risk is that you end up penalising some of the worst off uh, in society. And actually, those are the people that could benefit most from this transition. So if we fast forward to COP26 in 2021, what will UK PLC be able to highlight as success stories in driving the low carbon transformation? So I think actually there's 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 quite a lot. I mean, I, I suppose at the top of my list would be um, you know, where we can show global leadership on, on some of these things. And I think uh, uh, the UK Energy Transition Programme, where we're working with uh, a number of other countries around the world to to help countries move away and, and to transition to, to cleaner energy. Yeah, that, that's one of the things that we can highlight at, a, at an international level that's that's linked directly to to. COP26. But I guess closer to home, I think it is moving very, very quickly with these clear government strategies and providing the example and that that leadership, look, you know, we are committed to this. This is how we're going to do it. This is how we're going to deliver it and really get those conversations going. Actually, more than the conversations, really start the delivery process and, and getting private and government capital into, into the market. But that only goes so far. To really work, you've got to start seeing tangible examples of pilot projects. And you know, since I got involved in, in energy over 20 years ago, CCS or CCUS, as we now call it, has been on the agenda. We've got to move that forward. You can't have a hydrogen economy without CCUS. We've seen this from the Committee on Climate Change here in the UK. So let's get some projects up and running let's break ground on these things and get them moving and likewise how we scale up the ev charging network and classic sort of chicken egg situation we've we've got the 2030 target in great now let's start seeing the supportive ev charging network uh, roll out and i think actually other areas such as digital connectivity and how we address the issue of, of rural communities. It's as important as it is for, for broadband as it is for EV charging to make sure that we don't leave communities behind in this and actually showing how we've adjusted that and going back to the previous point around how we make sure people don't lose out and adjust transition is really, really important. And then last but not least, I think, it's how we incorporate climate change commitments into that regulatory decision-making process, but also how we do that within government. And we seem to signals towards this, which is brilliant, but actually there needs to be a, a sort of almost a legislatory net zero policy test for every decision of government. Are we constantly heading in the right direction? Is this going to enable net zero? If you can tick all of those boxes to me, I think we'd be a long, long way to, to having a good COP26. That's a really great summary, thank you. And we're almost out of time. So I wonder if we can just close with both Lawrence and Colin, just any final remarks from both of you? Maybe Colin, do you want to go first? Yeah, please do. Um, well, you'll have seen from all of the country's announcements, plus I think the, the Biden administration and, the, and, and, and people looking ahead to COP26, as Lawrence said, that 
you know, we're in a competitive world here and the UK has no right at all to attract funding over other nations. Um, but we have some very, very strong assets. We have a good pedigree. We have good aspirations. Um, and all of those things have historically made us very investable. Um, and, and we really do need to work hard to make sure they're not eroded. Um, I mean, maybe just to finish on a positive note, um, I think, you know, alongside government commitments, alongside uh, all of the challenges, you know, we're really seeing a sea change in societal demands now with, as we've, we said in the report, with consumers increasingly choosing companies who share their environmental concerns. And this shift is actually driving an unprecedented level of confidence in, in you know, the benefits of investing in cleaner, more sustainable energy um, and actually more sustainable ways of delivering all services. So you're seeing that, you know, returning consumer worlds and transportation worlds really having to to adjust to this. Um, and I think people are increasingly concerned about transparency as well in governance and in societal purpose. Um, and max, just maximising shareholder value on its own is no longer enough. Um, so I think, you know, put all of these things together, there is going to be a real fundamental desire um, within business, within investors, but also just in the in the in the society at large um, to invest, to research these areas. And, you know, you are really seeing this coming through in research institutions. And I guess COVID has shown us as well that, you know, when we do as a society put our minds to uh, development and research, we can do things at pace and do things incredibly well. Um, and I really hope that some of that is harnessed in, in, in how we think ahead to net zero. You know, so after a dark few months, I think it's actually a time for some real optimism for many reasons. Um, and this week has been hugely pleasing for us to see our considerations being being genuinely taken into account by government um, and to see so, sort of a strategic plan um, and and the spending framework, which which I think is really going to um, uh, going to look ahead with purpose and commitment. Thanks, Colin. How about you, Lawrence? Yeah, I, th I think I'd probably share um, Colin's optimism there. I suppose the sort of one thing I, or the, or the one warning I would I would say is, since we signed up to twenty fifty, we have actually lost a couple of years almost, and so we've really got to press the accelerator um, and get these things moving. But having said that, I think the announcements are. Uh, that have come out uh, recently are very positive and I think actually it's it's a tremendously exciting period to be involved in in any element of, of the net zero transition. I think there are opportunities for, for companies um, internationally as well as domestically here in, in the UK. I think the capital is undoubtedly available. We know there's something in the region, well, somewhere north of 200 billion US dollars of dry powder that's capital ready to apply deploy now so combined with government funding the capital is there we actually just need to all work together to get those frameworks in place and, and we can really move forward and i think it, it signals almost a, a resetting of capitalism almost in in some respects um you know as as colin said yeah we're not just uh here to to serve shareholders interests actually a company can create much more value i think from looking after and and working with the societies that we all live and 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 grow and build our families and our companies in so there's a different level of responsibility of corporate responsibility and i think you blend all of that together and it's just a tremendously exciting future prospect for us all and those are the companies that will emerge as the winners because those are the companies that people want to work for absolutely mm. So thanks so much, uh, Lawrence and Colin, for sharing those insights. And of course, thanks to everyone for listening. 
If you'd like to find out more about our real assets practice, visit our website at pwc.co.uk forward slash real assets, where you can download a copy of Unlocking Capital for Net Zero Infrastructure. And you can also learn more about how we're helping our clients put sustainability at the heart of their business strategy at pwc.co.uk forward slash sustainability. Finally, don't forget to subscribe to keep up to date with all of our latest episodes of this Business and Focus podcast series. Thanks, everyone, and speak to you next time.